Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and we are going to continue with our series as promised on understanding the U.S.-China rivalry, the strategic competition that has been brewing. Um, and today joining me to have a conversation on what's going on related to Pakistan and China is Dr. Samir Lalwani. He's a senior expert on South Asia at the United States Institute of Peace. He's been on the podcast before, so the longtime listeners are familiar with him and his analysis. But for those of you who don't know Samir, he's also a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And from 2015 to 2022, he was a senior fellow for Asia Strategy and the director of the South Asia program at the Stimson Center. And the reason why we have Samir joining us today is because he has a very timely report that was out a, a few weeks ago now uh, titled The Threshold, Threshold Alliance, the China-Pakistan Military Relationship. So when we look at sort of the U.S.-China strategic competition, obviously a lot of focus on the Quad, as you heard from Andrew Small uh, last week on the podcast. But really on the Pakistan-China side is with CPEC being the crown jewel of the BRI the military relationship is critical. A lot of people talk about Gwadar, etc. We just heard news this week um, that new frigates are being delivered uh, to the Pakistanis as well. So we're going to talk to Samir about that relationship. So Samir, welcome back to Pakistanomy. And, and thank you for writing a fantastic and must-read report for those of us who follow, at least from my perspective, I follow the econ side. And you did a great job in educating me and many others uh, about the military dimensions of this relationship as well. Well, thanks for having me on there. This is it was a fun report to write. I learned a lot in the process. It started with a, just sort of a set of questions that I was curious about. And as I dug deeper, I realized it was a report to write here. Well, let's begin with something that you say very up top in, in, in this report. Uh, quote, the China-Pakistan military partnership has deepened significantly over the past decade, approaching a threshold alliance. Help us understand, what is a threshold alliance? Yeah, that's great. Well, the reason it's so not well understood is because I made it up as a term, uh, but that is sort of my, my attempt to sort of make a contribution to uh, our thinking about alliances. So I'll take a step back and say, the motivation came in part because I heard a lot of discussion in policy settings in Washington, suggesting that the United States had this uh, asymmetric advantage over China, which is that we had all these allies uh, and China had none. And I think on paper, that is correct to a degree. Um, we have sort of these mutual defense treaties with a number of partners, a uh, number of countries in uh, East Asia and certainly in NATO, uh, and they allow for a lot of potential in terms of um, collaboration, in terms of intelligence sharing, uh, war fighting, basing, et cetera. Uh, but as you slice up sort of different functions in alliance, I started to look at what China's relationships were with a number of countries and realized that they had not all, but a number of these properties with various countries. And so with Pakistan in particular, I decided to look closely at it because of sort of the historic military relationship and deep political relationship and look at how many of these potential functions uh, might exist uh, within, within that relationship. So for me, the way I define a threshold alliance, it's actually derived from there's a threshold state literature, which comes from the nuclear weapons literature, which says that a threshold state is a, a country that has accumulated the material conditions and technical capacity to quickly transform an ostensibly peaceful nuclear program into a weapons program, should it choose. And so for me, this is a useful analogy for describing um, 
uh, alliance structures, that you could have uh, a certain depth of material and technical conditions for military interoperability uh, that could move a defense relation relationship to the edge of wartime coordination, but short of writing things down and making specific mutual defense commitments. So all the material technical components could be there. Um, and it was just a matter of whether you made the political choice or not to utilize and exercise those. And so that, that to me was a useful framework to assess um, how far along the, the China-Pakistan military relationship was. And it looked to me like a lot of those material and technical components had been built up, particularly over the last decade. Well, that's fascinating. And, and again, as you argue in that report with a lot of really awesome data, and by the way, for those who want to dive deeper, the link to the report is in the description of this conversation. Um, you show that, you know, China is now the largest provider of arms and ammunitions and weapon systems to Pakistan. Um, first of all, help us understand in the grand trajectory of things, right? Like the United States historically has been the largest provider. You say and show through the data that China is now number one. Um, so what? how has that evolved over time? Help us understand that. And then secondly, um, what types of weapons and systems are the Chinese beginning to provide? Is it the kind of the low-end day-to-day stuff? Is it more sophisticated stuff? Um, and where do you see that going in terms of the needs that the Pakistanis have and how the Chinese are fulfilling those needs at this point in time? That's great. Um, so I think I try to measure arms transfers. There's a number of ways you can do it. Um, the most traditional way is to look at CIPRI data because they track um, what they call sort of trend indicator value over time. Uh, but it's hard because like, like you know, uh, to estimate the value of a weapon system, like let's say, uh, you know, a, a fighter aircraft, um, the value is based on the price that's paid, but also the function it performs and it's sort of relative utility, um, you know, above replacement of another another platform. So Cipri has its own sort of customized trend indicator value. And if you just sort of look at the cumulative value of arms transfers from various countries to Pakistan over time, you see this really steep incline from China uh, about around 20, 2010 or so, uh, 2008 to 2010 uh, is when you started to see a steep ascent of the um, Chinese sort of uh, value of weapons that are being transferred or sold to, to Pakistan, uh, well above um, what's coming from the United States, UK, France, et cetera. Um, but that's just one measure, and it doesn't really tell you sort of about the composition of the forces. And so what I tried to do was look to the actual force structure and all the major weapons platforms for each service and then add them up, source them, so identify sort of what their sourcing is from, and then start to estimate the percentage of each service's force structure that originates from various countries. And what I found was that uh, that uh, China composed um, uh, certainly the, the the largest proportion uh, share of weapons that was sort of, that Pakistan was uh, that had in its current force structure. So I looked at it by decade, and by 2020, China was the largest uh, provider. Um, but actually, if you project out to 2030, based on public reporting about what weapon systems Pakistan is inducting into its force over time and what it's retiring, uh, I basically came out with an estimate that about 50% of each service's weapon systems are going to come from China. Uh, and that's pretty significant, right, to sort of have sort of 50% share of each of the services, Army, Air Force, and, and Navy. Um, that was sort of pretty significant. And then a third level of analysis, which was all right, what, what kinds of systems are we talking about, right? So it's one thing to sort of measure um, just sort of raw quantity of, of systems, but we know that, you know, a fighter aircraft is not the same as, uh, you know, uh, uh, a helicopter or um, a transport plane or sort of an ISR platform. So 
uh, let's like look at like like sort of systems. And in slicing it up by service, what I basically found was that sort of the combat uh, strike platforms were already largely coming from from China to Pakistan. Uh, so in terms of like uh, offensive platforms, again, in, in the Air Force, you're talking about uh, combat aircraft as opposed to sort of transport or ISR, uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. Uh, in the Army, we're talking about um, uh, uh, mobile fires uh, and rocket rocket artillery as well as tanks as opposed to, you know, transport vehicles, um, uh, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, uh, infantry support, et cetera. Uh, and in the Navy, we're talking about um, ships that have missile cells, right? Land attack missile cells uh, or vertical launch cells. Uh, and so there's a large amount of ships that are supply and sustainment um, and patrol. But the, for the missile cells, uh, for, for the ships with large amounts of missile cells, those are all coming from China or a very large proportion of them. So uh, again, that's in the report. You can sort of see, I try to sort of uh, distinguish, distinguish the functions of these different platforms as you aggregate them. Uh, it's overwhelmingly that you can say that Pakistan's offensive combat strike capability uh, depends heavily on China. Well, that's that's quite interesting. And and again, um, sort of crushed, again, if you go to the, your point on threshold alliance and then sort of building that capability, it's getting there already, is there in many instances. Um, that's the data. What does this all mean? Uh, first, let's start with your perspective on what this means for the broader China-Pakistan relationship. And I ask this question primarily because, as you know, and our audience knows Pakistan is going through a major political economic crisis. China obviously is a big provider of geopolitical, geostrategic rents to Pakistan in terms of financing. Hasn't come up in a big way besides just helping avoid default so far because they're also waiting for the IMF. Um, but some have argued increasingly and including myself for this essay I wrote for the Atlantic Council saying that, look, as these economic issues persist, um, the ability of the Chinese to have more and more strategic influence and military influence and naval influence in, in, in Pakistan will grow. Now, does that happen tomorrow if we wake up and all sorts of things have happened? No, it's a slow and steady march. And your data also shows a slow and steady march on the capabilities and the weapons. Um, so as you're looking at things shaping up in Pakistan and where the, the Chinese and the U.S.-China competition is going, based on what you've looked at in this report, where do you see this relationship going uh, and, and, and the implications of this relationship in the region, broadly speaking? Yeah, okay. So there's there's a separate number of pieces to this. So let me, maybe what I'll do is I'll talk about the first implication that I kind of try to highlight. And then the other two require a little more unpacking. But let's focus on the first one, which is sort of the arms and influence story here, right? So as uh, Pakistan increasingly depends on China, for not only sort of the vast percentage of its arms and capabilities, but also sort of the highest end and, and sort of most important capabilities for um, the military to project force and power. And with that, I should add sort of it's not just combat strike capabilities, but also a lot of the ISR and targeting abilities are really dependent on a Chinese tech stack. And by that, I mean, um, the Beidou satellite networks for targeting, uh, for, for navigation, positioning, and targeting. Uh, the uh, fiber optic cables that sort of run through the country, but also, um, you know, undersea cables that sort of come to the landing stations in Pakistan are all Chinese origin. It's 5G compute, cloud computing capabilities are going to depend on that. So any, any algorithmic warfare, anything that requires sort of advanced 
computation for uh, intelligence sharing, targeting, battle networks, uh, encryption uh, is, is sort of dependent on a, on a Chinese uh, hardware spine. And the, should the Chinese choose to, they could cut that off if they wanted to. So, so there's it's the level of influence I'd say is really significant. And it's also one that's much, much more sticky and inelastic, right? So the, the economic leverage that you're describing, I think is very true that Pakistan's sort of in dire economic straits. It has sort of a, a, a sort of a dwindling number of creditors and those who own its debt. Uh, and the Chinese are sort of one of the most likely candidates to, to help Pakistan. And they'll take their pound of flesh alongside it. But what I will say is that even in these situations, there is a degree of fungibility uh, when it comes to uh, economic and, and economic and, and crediting, which is that any creditor, should they want to, for non-rational or strategic reasons, bail out Pakistan. And we saw, for example, with Sri Lanka, right, their creditors were a, a multitude of um, Western creditors as well as uh, a large share from, from China. But it was India that came into the fray and provided sort of $4 billion loan to bail, bail Sri Lanka out. So there's a degree of fungibility and economic leverage that that you have. With strategic and military leverage, it is far less simple. Pakistan can't just easily switch networks, uh, switch sort of battle networks. Um, it can't easily sort of change out its arms and ammunition and systems and uh, pilots who are trained on those systems and engineers and mechanics who are trained on systems to manage and sustain those systems. There is a long tail of dependence that is very sticky and hard to change over time. It's very path dependent. And I'd say the example that one should look to is uh, the case of India with Russia today, right? India, I think, is extremely hamstrung in terms of what it can say publicly, uh, leave alone what it can do when it comes to Russia's behavior in the war in Ukraine. I don't think India is a supporter of it, but it's very tight-lipped about it in part because it knows that how dependent it is on Russian arms and sustainment. Uh, and I think that is what has really hamstrung India's ability to say or do things. Now, I think Pakistan's dependence on China could be even greater uh, over time. And so the leverage that China will be able to exert over Pakistan, I think, is in some ways hard to even imagine, but probably is even greater than sort of the economic leverage we're talking about today. Uh, that, that kind of influence is sort of enduring and sticky uh, and sort of really gets at the core of Pakistan's national security. Interesting. And, and again, I think as I, uh, you know, your point on fighter pilots and other systems being trained on is, is very important, right? In the sense that a dollar is a dollar. It comes from the Chinese. It's good. It comes from the Saudis. Same thing. You can choose what you do with it, but not all planes are, you know, you can just, you can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to change this whole thing out and be flying them tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. So I think that that's an important distinguishing feature here. Um, and then so let's let's talk about the region. Then you mentioned India and sort of Russia. There's this perspective. Well, first of all, how did the Pakistanis receive your report is what I want to know about. What was the feedback you got? Because there's this view in Pakistan and I can already see the comments coming in. Well, typical DC perspective, <laughs> concerned about the China-Pakistan friendship. The Americans don't like it because now India is their best friend. What was that feedback like? Um, and then I'll get to the other other questions I have. But I, the stream of consciousness, what, what have you heard from the Pakistanis? You know, to be honest, I haven't heard anything yet. Uh, you know, other than on what I will say is that it was curious. I noticed on Twitter, which is sort of a very, you know, obviously it's the most uh, uh, most like well-informed source of uh, assessment. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I was surprised that 
I was seeing uh, retweets and engagement of the reports and sort of the analysis on Twitter uh, from both Indians and Pakistanis, right? In a, in a way, like, I'm not sure what it means, but I guess one sort of plausible explanation is from, from Pakistan's perspective where some strategic analysts in Pakistan might either A, be concerned about the degree of the relationship and the dependence, or B, might think it's an asset, right? I mean, sort of like there's, there is some bargaining leverage that Pakistan might accrue from a deepened relationship with China that gives it something like extended deterrence. So uh, I think there's two ways to interpret it. But thus far, I think I've had, uh, you know, what appears to be some positive um, engagement in part because, look, I, what I was trying to do was just present the data. And and I, I took some great pains to unearth it in different ways. I mean, I didn't talk about the, the air exercises, but, you know, um, my research assistant and I basically collected all the analysis or public statements and descriptions of the air, the China Pakistan Shaheen air exercises over 10 years and analyzed it for certain properties of complexity and then measured complexity based on some key properties like live fire, nighttime training or electromagnetic countermeasures. And, and then sort of tried to assess over time is this is the complexity increasing in terms of the quality of the air exercises? And the finding was, yes, in fact, it is, which means it's a much more interoperable air force for what purposes uh, to be determined. But you don't build interoperability so that you can, you know, just high five and walk away. You build interoperability to conduct missions together. Um, and some of those missions might be wartime missions. So uh, this is an important uh, feature that's sort of coming out. Now, again, it's possible that uh, I, I think sort of from the U.S. perspective and U.S. allies perspective, we build interoperability with U.S. allies to enhance deterrence. So it's possible that Pakistan thinks this will enhance its deterrence vis-a-vis -vis India uh, or vis-a-vis -vis other, other actors in the region. Um, but there are also certain, I would say, sort of challenges and costs that come along with this, um, and certainly on the arms and influence side. But, you know, a third component of the report was looking at the potential for basing in Pakistan. And um, there's been some excellent work that's been on sort of the material side of potential basing, uh, particularly in terms of the uh, sort of the, the, the material features of Gwadar as a port, uh, in terms of what's being built in terms of the docks, the, um, the loadout areas, the um, staging areas around it, um, a potential of a, 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 a runway that's being built for uh, in, uh, an airport that could have sort of military utility. So so there's been a lot of op uh, open source analysis on that. But what I was trying to look at was the sort of the political calculus behind Gwadar and found that I think there is a lot of interest uh, in it sort of performing military functions for the PLA and for the, uh, the, for the PLA military and Navy. And um, but there are certain challenges that will and consequences that will come for that for Pakistan, but also for the region. Like, for example, if China is able to dominate the Indian Ocean, I think we'll have a very different uh, operational picture for all the major powers, uh, for commercial traffic, for um, the U.S. and Indian navies, um, and for, frankly, any um, any commercial or shipping that takes place that operates with certain assumptions about uh, uncloth and sort of uh, the, the freedom and sort of uh, openness of the commons um, to uh, sort of the, the consequences of you know, potential conflict in the region. That that's what I was gonna get to, and you kind of read my mind on that. Like, if you go towards the basing argument, then in terms of Gwadar in particular, but even through, let's say, um, sort of the CPEC corridor connecting into Xinjiang, which many Pakistanis have written about uh, over the years, um, you know, in terms of how the Straits of Malacca are shut, and this is an alternative route, especially for energy flows, etc. 
We've seen the Chinese play peacemaker between the Saudis and the Iranians in recent weeks as well. So that Western theater essentially is where China is trying to, in my view, at least outflank the United States, right? Like right next to CENTCOM, essentially in Doha. How do you, if you were to then look at your findings and the research you've done, what are the implications of that scenario playing out, right? Let's, let's, let's hypothesize that that's where this is going in the next five, seven, 10 years. Um, what what are the implications of that for the United States in particular and for India, given that the U.S. and India are coming closer together in the region? And then more importantly, um, does that create renewed risks for Pakistan as well? Because if you're going down that path, then sort of the relationship or this desire to you know, navigate the U.S.-China competition becomes that much harder. Um, and 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 do you see that actually being the case? Because the Pakistanis consistently, at least when they come to D.C., say we don't want to pick a side. But if I read your report, I'm like, you kind of are already picking a side. How do you see that? Yeah. OK, so I think so. Let's talk about the implications for, for each the United States, India and Pakistan. Um, I think the United States, so there's a broader point that I'm trying to make that is sort of beyond Pakistan, which is uh, what I started with, which is that I think China actually has the ability to build certain functions and properties of alliances that actually might be able to compete with the United States, right? Certainly in terms of geographic access, I think that is a, is now sort of an understood uh, prospect for, for China. And this is not just my work, but um, uh, the RAND Corporation had a couple of studies that came out last uh, December that were looking at prospects for this. And they're all kind of concentrated in, in South Asia, whether it's uh, Bangladesh, Myanmar, um, Pakistan. These are sort of like most likely places for um, uh, Chinese military basing in the future. Uh, so I think that'll have major consequences for the U.S., how we plan, uh, the assumptions we operate with in terms of uh, both transit and maneuver in the Indian Ocean. Thus far, it's kind of been a fairly open highway, and it could get more contested and congested um, over uh, the next 10 years or so. I think it's also possible that once, and I talked about this, I think of it if not in this report, in another paper or an article I've written, that uh, over 10 years, I think it's quite possible that China could become the dominant uh, naval force in the Indian Ocean if it decides to move a number of its surface warfare assets into the Indian Ocean, which uh, it might have spare capacity to do because it's producing at sort of such a massive rate and volume. And it's not clear to me that they need all those assets for uh, East Asian contingencies, because a lot of that is, you know, it's anti-access area denial capabilities, not uh, surface warfare power projection. And so for those, I, I see there's a larger role for China to play in the Indian Ocean. So I, I could see that the, the, so the balance of power in the Indian Ocean could fundamentally change and Pakistan could be party to that, uh, in part because of sort of the providing basing uh, options as well as um, sustainment possibilities on, on its Western shores. So that's one big one. And then the second is, as I said, is that China is building uh, alliances uh, in various ways. And its pathway to great power status may not look like the U.S. pathway to great power status, right? It builds capabilities in different ways. It builds alliances in different ways. It builds um, basing through sort of commercial port, uh, port, port access uh, in different ways. It, it builds amphibious transit uh, and amphibious sort of operational transit through uh, commercial ferries. So there, there are different ways in which China will sort of build its military power that we should not, um, we should perceive, uh, you know, for what it actually is rather than sort of misestimating or underestimating Chinese capability.
So that's for the United States side. For India, I think what was interesting to me was despite the fact that the Indians are most fixated on a China-Pakistan uh, collusive two-front on their land border, uh, where sort of the two ar- the, the the three armies sort of intersect, um, and there's been concerns that sort of the the Chinese operations in Ladakh uh, are sort of inching forward to being able to create a two-front sort of pincer movement on around the Siachen Glacier for India. Um, to me, that was not the most concerning China-Pakistan coll- military collaboration. To me, the more concerning part is at the in, with the Navy. Uh, I think that if if there is this transfer of about eight Hangor class submarines to Pakistan over the next five years, which is what it's projected, at least on paper, uh, Pakistan's um, anti-access and sort of uh, attack submarine capability will be really formidable, uh, both for India and for other maritime powers. And I think that actually should be of greater concern to India than sort of the, the two fronts sort of land border concern that I think is often expressed. That might be more visible, that might sort of sort of resonate more politically, but in terms of actual coercive leverage and power uh, and military power, I think the more concerning aspect for India should be at sea. And, unpack, and you don't see India. Unpack that a bit. So, why, why do you think that that naval issue is, is far more concerning? Well, I think it allows the Indians. Oh, so, so one is that India has always had this advantage over Pakistan that even if they stalemated on land and you know in terms of air capabilities at sea, it always had a major advantage. This is true in the major wars in 1971, uh, 1999. Uh, there were some discussions sort of its naval capabilities during the 2019 crisis. I think if India stalemated at sea, that really changes the power balance uh, significantly. The second is that. Um, if, if uh, you know, China is able to operate out of the Indian Ocean uh, and, and sort of operate out of Pakistani bases, you have a real um, uh, sort of identification challenge, which is that you might be trying to track Pakistani submarines and you accidentally are tracking Chinese submarines. And, you you know, you're, if you depth charge those submarines, then you're, you're antagonizing an actor that you may not want to antagonize. So it's, and vice versa. Um, if India is conducting anti-submarine warfare operations on Chinese submarines in the Indian Ocean and thinks it's tracking a Chinese sub, but it's actually a Pakistani uh, uh, submarine that's sort of a Type 39 Chinese sub uh, origin, and it has nuclear weapons on board, as in uh, submarine-launched cruise missiles with nuclear capabilities, then you're attacking a nuclear asset at sea, uh, and that mistake would could be can be, you know, extremely deadly uh, and, ter- and cataclysmic in terms of you know, escalation potential. So I think there is a, a distinguishability challenge that that India and the United States will face in the Indian Ocean as as this relationship deepens and as China sort of grows stronger in there. And then the third is the bigger challenge for India, um, in my opinion, is what China can do to India at sea that is already done on land in the LAC. So on the LAC, what it has done is managed to tie down Indian forces and uh, uh, sort of antagonize and, uh, and prick them at will. Uh, and that has cost India, uh, it has had a peacetime attrition effect on India's military, right? They have to uh, keep 100,000 troops on the border. They have to keep them acclimatized. It's really expensive to sort of keep them forward deployed. Uh, the cost in fuel and, and supplies and sort of transport of all that stuff, and then sort of the rotations of troops that you have to sort of keep there. It's a very, very expensive proposition. And that might be a strategy in and of itself for China. They may not want to do anything more than to sort of bleed India in peacetime through the amount it costs to sort of keep those forces deployed there. Now, think about that at sea. If you are um, sort of moving submarines and antagonizing or, or sort of threatening India's ports, 
what that does to the cost of commercial shipping and to insurance rates, uh, to the potential of, you know, closures of certain ports if they're threatened at times by Chinese subs or, or service warfare, um, uh, you know, frigates or destroyers. Um, the influence that China can project at sea around the, the region to smaller states that are intimidated by Chinese forces operating there, um, the backstopping it does to the, the Chinese maritime militia and illegal fishing fleet that is, um, you know, stealing the natural patrimony of, of these countries and their, and their exclusive economic zones, and they can't contest it because it's backed by gray holes of Chinese warships. So there's a whole host of things that basically, if you look at the playbook of what's happened in the South China Sea, that China, if it builds this Indian Ocean fleet, can do in the Indian Ocean at a much larger scale. So those are those are the things I think should concern India and the United States, and frankly, through the region at large. Thank you. Thank you for um, uh, elaborating on that, because, again, my own perspective on this as an amateur player of risk, the board game is that, you know, if, if AUKUS wants to position nuclear subs in Australia all the way into the east, while the Chinese can easily do an outflanking maneuver, as you've described, in the Indian Ocean, and then it's very different, right? All of a sudden, now it's CENTCOM involved, and now it's the Indians outflanked over there and, like, participating in the Indian Ocean, and as you said, tracking subs that they don't know or are not sure of who they belong to, and that can lead to all sorts of escalations that perhaps none of us want to see happen in our lifetime, at least. Um, last question on my end, Samir, is... Um, if you were to, based on your research and what's going on right now across the world with the U.S.-China rivalry, Andrew Small was on the podcast last week, talked about sort of, you know, what the Philippines is doing, the South Koreans, the Japanese have fully changed their national security posture as a result of that. What are some things that you are keeping an eye on, let's say, in the next 12 to 24 months, um, you know, from your research perspective to understand and follow this emerging rivalry between the United States and China. And I ask this question because you obviously follow this stuff closely. And part of the goal for me in doing this series on the U.S.-China competition is to have our audience understand and be a bit more nuanced about what's going on here. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on what you're keeping an eye on and, and sort of following in terms of big picture trends that are shaping this competition. So, and you mean beyond just the the, the China Pakistan relationship Correct. sort of more broadly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so I mean, to start with the China Pakistan relationship, which is I think there's sort of potential signs that things could really deepen if you start to see more um, uh, uh, Chinese naval naval activity coming into shore um, on Pakistan shores. Uh, I know the one thing I was sort of looking closely to was the the runway that's being built. Uh, near Gwadar and what gets the position there and, and sort of how it gets used. I think at some point that could, it, it is a runway that is going to be long enough and potentially structurally sound enough for at least Chinese transport aircraft, military transport aircraft, which means you could be resupplying uh, to there. So um, so I think there are certain trends, you know, weapons transfers that will take place over the next uh, couple of years. I mean, uh there's been a puzzle, which is that Pakistan has been promised these submarines, and there is reports of the, that the the steel has been cut for these submarines, but we haven't actually seen sort of delivery yet. So if those submarines come uh, to fruition or delivered, and they start getting um, inducted and, and and deployed, then then that'll tell us something about the case. Thus far, this is still on paper and hasn't actually materialized. Uh, and then I think the last thing I'm paying close attention to is sort of the the, the next set of exercises uh, between. China and Pakistan. I think the last major air exercise was in 2020, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. That was during COVID, and there hasn't been another one 
I think it was, uh, I was surprised that there's been a delay in this, but to me that I'm, I'm just paying attention as a sort of a tactical data point, but I think it can tell us a little bit more about the trend lines and what's going to happen here. Cause no one was really paying close attention to this, I think two, three years ago. And now I don't know. We, and maybe that might explain why there hasn't been another one. Or yeah, like I was going to say, maybe that, that's why they're trying to yeah. delay more to yeah, the, the unobservable might be telling us something. Um, okay. So broadly in the region, uh, yeah, I think you've alluded to some things that we should be paying attention to, like AUKUS, right? AUKUS to me is important, not because of, not exclusively because of the submarine uh, delivery plan, um, which, but it's, it's, it's the costly signals that come along with it, right? So there's two forms. One is sharing sort of this exquisite nuclear propulsion technology, um, probably black box, but still giving it to another partner that the United States hasn't done since the 1950s with the British. Um, and uh, so that's meant to signal sort of how much we are willing to lean into our partners, we our partners or allies, but simultaneously what we're expecting in return, right? And I think that so the implications of that are pretty clear is that, you know, Australia should be equipped with these capabilities but ought to use these capabilities uh, in support of a coalitional effort for, for things of mutual interest, which are likely specific contingencies. Um, the second part of AUKUS is actually the one that we haven't sort of seen much about, and it's a little maybe concerning to me is that is this the pillar two of AUKUS. And that is about opening up the prospects for greater research and development and joint um, uh, innovation, as well as production of advanced military and future capabilities or emerging technology capabilities. And this is sort of in, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, quantum computing, um, but even some basic things like guided munitions production in Australia so that they can have long range fires from their own towards that are produced in Australia, right? This is the counterpart for, in, for the United States um, burden sharing with its partners is to share capabilities and technology. And so this is, it is a litmus test of how far the United States is willing to go to do that in order to achieve sort of the burden sharing that it's seeking uh, in terms of deterrence and defense responsibilities. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that taking place, not nearly of the same scale, but a little bit of that taking place between the U.S. and India. So there's an initiative. I mean, I think there's been initiatives with all the Quad countries, right? With, with Australia, it's been AUKUS. With Japan, it's been um, uh, sort of increased sort of basing potential and sort of distribution of forces within Japan's territory, but also the acquisition of Tomahawk missiles, which, uh, you know, the, um, and which I think will also be a fairly significant technology transfer. Uh, and with India, what you're seeing is this discussion about um, ISIS, so the Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technology. And there, what we're, I think you're seeing is a little bit more of a bottom-up approach. Uh, some technologies that are going to potentially be transferred, I, I think, in the discussion, it's sort of GE engine production, which has been sort of a, a kind of an Achilles heel of India's own fighter aircraft and all sort of commercial aviation programs is uh, the inability to sort of produce really uh, you know capable engines. And just um, for the but, audience, um, engine production is a super sophisticated, complex, highly guarded technology. This is not just like making a 800cc Maruti Suzuki engine. These are very right. sophisticated, advanced materials are needed and technologies are needed to make them. Absolutely. Yeah, even today, I mean, like you look at the sort of open source estimates and comparisons of Russian versus Chinese uh, um, jet engines, and they're nowhere comparable to sort of the U.S. or, frankly, even U.K. or French uh, jet engines in terms of like their durability, thrust, et cetera, uh, you know. So um, so the G engine might be sort of part of it, but, but the, there's another sort of element, which is sort of this bottom-up effort at 
linking our innovation systems and our innovation ecosystems, uh, defense startups, uh, and defense industry uh, to co-develop and co-produce. And the, the language has been sort of on paper there for about a decade or so. Uh, and and it's, it's to, a, to, a, to a point of frustration with the Indians. Uh, but I think there is a real effort within the, the current administration to try to actually make that real this time and to sort of actually yield some actual projects uh, that sort of are now sort of put into the wild and tested. And from there to, you know, scale up the, the sort of the, level and quality of the relationship and the, the level and quality of joint innovation and production. So, but that's a, that's a ambition. And we'll see, I think over the next couple of years, we'll start to see uh, whether those things pay off. And if they do, if all these efforts I'm talking about in terms of technology sharing uh, pay off, and I think you'll see also increased levels of burden sharing. And that to me will really change the balance of power um, in the Indo-Pacific writ large, because then I think you have sort of uh, a number of U.S. allies that are not just existing on paper and not just sort of you know um, uh, name checked, but actually making significant contributions to this coalitional effort of uh, deterrence and stability, and and that I think will be um, even more formidable than what China can can generate with its with its partners. Yeah, and I think what you just said is consistent with what Andrew was saying as well that the next three, four years, essentially will, you know, the proof will be in the pudding and you will begin to see capabilities, technologies, investments materialize after which, you know, we all will very clearly know where things are headed and how how the balance of power is shifting. So Samir, thank you so much for taking out the time. Thank you so much for putting out and doing your research. Um, for the audience, it's this, it's in the, the link is in the description below. And before I let you go, Samir, again, since this is a special series, but I always ask my guests this question, you're familiar with this one, um, share two or three books, this time around specifically to this topic of the US-China competition uh, that folks should pick up and read. Because again, part of the goal of this series is to have our audiences get a bit more nuanced understanding about, you know, this this geopolitical competition between China and the United States. Yeah. Um, all right. So some books that I say I'm reading that I think, you know, others should consider reading uh, The Long Game by Rush Doshi, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, but I think it was a pretty significant contribution to the discussion of like how the U.S. sees competition with China. Um, Taylor Frabel's book, uh, Active Defense, which is focused on the, uh, the People's Liberation Army specifically and its, and its defense doctrine and strategy over time is another really illuminating um book that I that I've enjoyed reading and I think it's sort of thought provoking uh, and a book that I haven't yet read but plan to is Isaac Cardin's book on um, uh, China's I can't remember the exact title of it China's Law of the Sea uh, yeah China's Law of the Sea the new new rules of the uh, new rules of the maritime order is another uh, book on my on my um, order list at Amazon that just came out um, and I, I've I've benefited tremendously from uh, Isaac's work not only on uh, sort, of, uh, sort of lawfare at sea, but also the work he's been doing on Chinese ports and commercial ports uh, as a, a, a mechanism for power projection, including a report by him on water that everyone should take a look at, uh, also open access. So those are some of the books on my radar, um, but uh, I'm always looking for more. Well, thank you so much, Sabir, and keep up the great work. Always great to have you on the podcast, and thanks for enlightening us with your insights and your research, and uh, hope to have you back on again when you, maybe after the next air, uh, you know, training exercises that are done to get your perspective <laughs> on that. But until then, uh, stay safe and talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Sabir. Good to talk to you.